Welcome to this week's podcast of Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. Well, it is so good to see you here this morning, this uh, Sunday in Advent, and you guys have an important decision to make. I don't know if you made it yet. Which Christmas Eve service are you coming to? Because we got two options. We got four o'clock. Thanks for coming, by the way. We got four o'clock and 5.30. So uh, Christmas Eve is Saturday. So four o'clock, 5.30, we'd love to have you come. Uh, just be aware we don't have a kids program for kids above five. So anybody that's above five is going to be hanging out with you guys. But it'll be a great service, uh, 4.30 and uh, 5.30. Uh, no. I'm trying to throw you guys off so that you'll pay attention that it's 4 and 5.30. And then on Christmas morning at 9.30, we're going to have one service. And again, the same idea is going to apply if you have little ones under 5. We're going to have a spot in the nursery for them. But above 5, those kids will be staying with you. And the same is going to be true on January 1st. So January 1st, which is also a Sunday. So this year we get to celebrate both New Year's Day and Christmas Day is a Sunday. Well, hey, welcome. We're glad that you guys are here today. And if you want to grab a Bible, we're in Matthew chapter 2. We're in this series, Good News of Great Joy, as we look at this announcement that the angels bring to the shepherds. I bring you good news of great joy, which is for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And today we come to a very familiar story. And I'll tell you, it's an interesting and odd story that it's in the scriptures. Now, we're used to it, the story of the Magi, the wise men. And yet it's an intriguing message as what it says about the nature of the gospel, the nature of Jesus, and the way that Jesus came into the world. And before we jump into that, I want to introduce you to a a very different character than Jesus or Herod, and that's the story of the Grinch. If you've watched the movie more than likely or read the book as a child, you know how the story begins. The Grinch is high upon a mountaintop. He's looking down. And you realize something has really upset him. You later realize that what has angered the Grinch is the sound of Whoville. The celebration of Christmas has invaded his territory. And he's looking down upon the people of Whoville and he's, he's angry at their joy and their celebration. Now, in the origin story of the Grinch, we discover that he didn't grow up in a cave. He hasn't always been on a mountaintop, but rather when he was born, the stork didn't bring him to the rightful parents. Instead, he comes to the Who's of Whoville. And there, the Grinch grows up among the Who's of Whoville. He learns their traditions. He grows up in their, in their schools. And eventually, he realizes, kind of like Buddy the Elf, I don't belong. And he feels rejected, he feels unaccepted, and so to escape the pain, he runs up on top of a mountaintop to, to get away from the Who's of Whoville, and there he stays. But see, once a year, around Christmas time, this joyous sound invades his kingdom. And the Grinch becomes angry, and instead of wanting to join the Who's, he wants to destroy their celebration. And I imagine you know how the story ends with this very positive outcome. His heart is transformed. He eventually celebrates with the Who's and and everything comes out peaceful and right. Well, not every Christmas story, and certainly not the first stories, 
ended in peace. Because see, Matthew introduces us to a different kind of Grinch, that in that first story of Christmas, there was another individual who did not appreciate the celebration of Christmas, and that individual is a man named Herod. And when Herod hears the news of the birth of Jesus, like the Grinch, he feels threatened. Something has come into his territory. Something threatens his authority, his influence, his power. And instead of joining in with the Magi, instead what we see is that Matthew uh, tells us that Herod wants to kill this child, this king that is born king of the Jews. That in the story of Herod and Jesus, we have two very different kings and two very different kingdoms. I mean, Herod is cruel. Herod is cold. He's calculating. Jesus comes in humility with grace and truth. Herod protects his kingdom at all costs with violence and fear. But Jesus seems to welcome everyone into his kingdom. And his kingdom can't be defined by feet or miles, but rather in hearts and in lives. Jesus comes not to be served like Herod, but to serve. Jesus comes with power, but what he does is he uses that power to elevate others. You see in the story of Jesus that Matthew's telling two very different kinds of kings and two very different kinds of kingdoms. And what Matthew wants us to do as we read this story is to compare the two. And it's contrasting the kingdom of God with the kingdoms of this world. So if you're ready for that, let's grab a Bible. We're in Matthew chapter 2. We're going to read the first 12 verses as we discover this contrast between the kingdom that Jesus brought and the kingdom of Herod. So let's jump into it. You guys ready? Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Here we go. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star rose, and we've come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and he assembled all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, and he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem in Judea, for it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod summoned the wise men and secretly ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you find him, bring word to me that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that had been seen when it rose went before them, until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going to the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. And then opening their treasure, they offered gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. All thanks be to God. Hey, Father, as we gather here in this space, would you open our eyes to see, our ears to hear. There's so much in our culture that communicates the value of Christmas in terms of what we purchase and how we celebrate. But would we see 
in this story, the nature of Jesus' kingdom, how he welcomes us regardless of where we are, where we've come from, what we've experienced, that Jesus' kingdom, his authority, it's accessible to us if we would simply in humility receive it. And so would you meet us here, Father, this morning in Jesus' name, amen. So imagine you know the song, We Three Kings. How many kings? Of Orient are. Now, there's a challenge in that song because we do not know how many kings there are. Now, how many gifts are there? There's three gifts. But there's not necessarily three kings because they're not kings. It's part of the problem. Magi are not kings. They're astronomers, religious leaders. Uh, They're influential in their culture, but they're not kings. And they're not from the Orient. More than likely, they're from the region of Persia or Babylon. And they see this star in the east, and they travel to Jerusalem, to Israel, to discover this king because they were astronomers, astrologers. They studied the stars, and they thought the stars would tell them about significant events. And so they see this star, and they start heading towards it. And we discover in verse 1, once they get to, to, to Bethlehem, it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, behold, the wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. So they see this star, and they begin to approach in that direction, and they go to the place where is the source where you'd expect to find a king. You'd go to the source of power. Because they're assuming the king must have been born to Herod's household. And so they come to Herod's household, and to their surprise, this is not a king that is a descendant of Herod. But instead, they're looking for another king. And what Matthew is telling us, and what Luke does as well, is he's anchoring the birth and the story of Jesus within time and place in history. That the story of Jesus' birth is not a myth or a legend. Instead, it's something that's that's established in time. You think of Luke. Luke says that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, like Matthew, while Caesar Augustus was emperor, and while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And here, Matthew's telling us that Herod is king over Judea. So both Luke and Matthew are telling us the birth of Jesus, it took place in history. These are historic events. And then Matthew introduces us in verse two in an interesting way to King Herod. Because here's the question that Herod hears from these royal, maybe, prestigious, influential men that are coming from the east. And here's the question they ask in verse two. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Now realize Herod is the king of the Jews. And so you could imagine the fear, you could imagine the anger that rolls up into his mind and his thoughts when here comes these influential, wealthy individuals who are looking for a king. And then they say, we saw his star, his star, a star that's set aside for him, not for you, Herod. You didn't get a star, and we have come to worship him. And notice his response. He sees Jesus as a threat. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And likewise, it says, all of Jerusalem was troubled with him. And so what does he do? Verse four, he assembles the religious leaders and he asks this question, the the priests, verse four, the scribes, and he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. That Jesus, that uh, Herod sees this Jesus as a threat. Now, we know a lot about Herod from history, especially from the Jewish historian Josephus. And he tells us a lot about the ruthlessness of Herod's, Herod's reign, that he came to power by violence. Now, his father was also king over Judea, and his father was poisoned. 
So immediately within Herod, there's this idea of you've got to protect yourself and hold on to power. And he systematically assassinated everyone that stood between him and his father's throne so that he rose to power. And see, in coming to power, he didn't want to just sit on the throne. He wanted to protect it. And imagine this. He had to protect his power from his own sons. And so he assassinated or killed two of his own sons who were a little too thirsty for his throne. And along with the sons, you're going to have to take out the mom. She's not going to put up with that. And so he takes out his wife as well, simply because of his own para paranoid nature to protect his power and authority. And Caesar Augustus actually said this of Herod. He said, and I quote, it was better to be Herod's dog than to be Herod's son. That is how ruthlessly he protected the self-interest of what he had. And Herod acquired, he was very successful, acquired mass wealth, and he used that wealth to placate the Romans. Because he didn't want the Romans interfering on how he governed over Judea. And so he would give them lots of money so they'd kind of leave him alone. He would build palaces for influential people. Do you realize he even rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem to placate the Jews? Because he taxed them so much, he wanted them to be happy in some way. And so he used his wealth, his power, as a way of manipulating others to get them to obey him. And he also used his military might and power. When the Jews did revolt, because the taxes in Judea were at like 75%. And so when they revolted against those taxes, instead of sending out his army to wipe out the peasants, what he did was he took these very influential, your favorite pastor, your favorite religious leader, brought him in front of everybody, and he just killed them. And that silenced the revolt. That's how ruthless, in some ways maybe wise, he was. And he was so paranoid of his own power and influence that at the end of his life, on his deathbed, he put out this decree that when he dies, that many influential leaders within Judea and also religious leaders were to be executed on the very day of his death so that he would ensure somebody is going to be mourning and crying in Jerusalem on his de the day of his death. Now, thankfully, no one actually carried that out because when he was dead, I think everybody was kind of relieved that this guy was gone, but that's the nature of his kingdom. And if you think about it, that's not unusual. And that's the history of power in the world. Now, maybe we haven't seen that same exercise of authority and power in our context, but we see it across the globe. And we see it, we see it in ways in which power is used and manipulated. Fear is used to suppress others. And this is Herod's kingdom. Now, Matthew wants us to contrast who Herod is with Jesus. And so again, in verse 2, we discover who Jesus is through the question of the Magi, where is he who is, notice, born? He didn't arise to the throne. He is born king of the Jews because we saw his star in the east and we've come to worship him. And so they come to the center of power looking for this king. And Matthew's contrasting how Herod came to power with how Jesus came to power. What's unique about Jesus is that he was born king. Now, he wasn't born king in the sense that he was an heir to the throne. I mean, every king or queen probably was an, at some point was an heir to the throne, and then they rose to power. He's saying, as an infant, this is your king. And it's not just the king of Judea. This is the natural king. He is, he is the accepted king. He is the one that has authority in himself. His authority wasn't derived from Rome. He didn't look to someone else and say, hey, is it okay for me to rule today? He has authority in himself. And yet, this authority that's in himself arrives, this natural authority, arrives as a baby. 
as a child at his birth. That Jesus' kingdom, it doesn't value the same things as the kingdoms of this world. Because think about the birth of Jesus. That is the most ordinary way to enter into the world. How do kings make themselves known? Not through a birth, and not through poverty, and not through a stable, and not through peasants. A king, if a king's going to announce himself, there's got to be a parade, right? You've got to have musicians. You've got to have entertainment. We've got to bring some elephants, some camels up in this place. We got to see some dancers. We want to see gold and palaces because the kingdoms of this world prop themselves up on power, on money, on wealth, and influence. But the way Jesus comes into the world reveals what his kingdom uses. And it doesn't use anything in the world, it uses simply the authority of Jesus. It's all his kingdom needs. And all of that authority is wrapped up in this baby in Bethlehem. And so in this story, we see that the kingdom of Jesus is not like the kingdoms of this world. Jesus' authority is natural. Now, second, we also see that Jesus has extensive authority. See, when you think of Herod, Herod ruled over an area of Palestine called Judea. And he was a ruler that didn't have autonomy. Instead, he was under the Roman emperor. And so he had this little territory that he had to protect. And he couldn't do just what he wanted. Instead, he had to keep the Romans happy. Now, with the story of the Magi, these wise men coming from Persia, it's revealing not just the natural nature of Jesus' authority, but the extent. That his authority extends far beyond Judea, but instead, it reaches to the ends of the earth. That the first people who worshipped Jesus in Matthew's gospel are pagan sorcerers. Have you paused on that? Why is that? Because, see, his authority is in himself, but the extent of his authority, it's for the world. You would expect he is the Jewish Messiah, so the first people who should have worshipped him, right? High priests, religious leaders, the Jewish people. But what do we discover in this story? How do the religious leaders respond? Silence. Right? Here it goes. Hey, guys, don't you have a king coming? Yeah, 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 yeah. We do. We do. They didn't have to go look it up, right? We know where it is. It's in Micah. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. Okay, well, these guys are coming from the east to go see him. Oh, well, that can't be our king, right? Our king wouldn't welcome pagan sorcerers who worship false gods. That's not the people our God would ring up when he shows up into the world. Are you following me with that? Jesus' authority, his kingdom, it's extensive that what we see in there is the nature of the gospel that God's come for everybody. Though he shows up in Judea, he's come for the entire world and he's come to draw near people who others would have assumed would be so far from God, God would never speak to them. And you know, God could never use astrology, right? What a ridiculous thing. Horoscopes? I mean, how stupid is that? And yet God uses that. Do you realize that? He uses the stars. Even though God said himself in the Old Testament, don't follow sorcery, don't follow astrology. It's not a way I communicate, but see, God is willing to communicate in a way that grasps people where they are, regardless of who they are, or where they live. That is an amazing picture of our God, his authority, the extent of his authority. 
So we see he has natural authority. We see that he's come for the entire world. He has extensive authority, but finally he has divine authority, authority that comes to him from God. Now watch this in verse three. And so when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. So he assembled the chief priests, the scribes, the people of the law, inquired of them, where's the Christ, meaning the Messiah? Where's he gonna be born? And they told him, in Bethlehem and Judea, for it is written by the prophet, and this comes from Micah. In verse six, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And that ruler that was promised 700 years, the location was named is, is this baby, Jesus, who comes with God's prophetic authority. He is the child. He's the child the world has longed for. And I want to suggest he is the king, the child that all of us long for. That I think all of us long for good leaders, don't we? I don't know how many times I've heard this. And I'm going to hear it in two years. This is the most important election in our lifetime. Evidently, I've had five lifetimes, at least. I think as many I've paid attention to, because we, we long for a good ruler. And even if the track record isn't there, there's still this hope, isn't there? Because we long, I think deep in the human heart, we long for a ruler who is just and good and wise and uses their authority and power not to subject others and to rule over them, but to serve them, to love them, to lift them up. We all long for that. And you look at the money that was spent just in the last election alone. There is something within the human heart that longs for a king. And if you go look at the history of the world and look at legends and myths, every continent, every country, every culture has these myths. One you know probably well is King Arthur. And the story goes that King Arthur, the legend is that one day when Britain really needs him, King Arthur's gonna come back. And King Arthur's gonna come back to the throne in justice and he's gonna serve the people once again. And every culture has this legend, this myth of a good king that will come back and make things right. And not only does every culture, but our own favorite literature has this idea of a king that would come back like Lord of the Rings, who would come back and make the world right. As Tolkien says, all that is gold does not glitter. Not all those who wander are lost. The old that is strong does not wither. Deep roots are not reached by the frost. From the ashes a fire shall be woken, a light from the shadow shall spring, renewed shall be the blade that was broken, the crownless again shall be king. And we all long, don't we, for that idea of a just and right king. And Matthew's telling us that longing for a good ruler, it's fulfilled in the coming of this baby, this infant, this child, born in Bethlehem, that Jesus has the wisdom and the power and the authority and the extent of his reign to use his power to bring human flourishing to the world. And that's what we see in the teachings of Jesus. We see what it looks like to flourish as a human being under God's authority. His commands are not there to suppress joy. His commands are there to bring flourishing and life and truth and hope so that's what we see in the story of Jesus. We see the uniqueness of God's kingdom. Now, 
We can imagine as we read this story, the response to the kingdom of Jesus is it's pretty varied, just as it is today in our world. There are those that quickly believe, there's those that jeer, those that reject. And so let's take a few moments to look at the responses to Jesus' birth. And we actually see three. We're going to focus on two. We see Herod, and then we see the Magi. So let's jump into that. Again, verse 3, Herod responds, and he's troubled. He's afraid. Because here are these influential individuals. There's astrological signs in the sky. Something's going on, and it's not for me. It's not pointing to me. And here come these men to worship this king. And again, along with Herod, we see the religious leaders. And it says all Jerusalem, and that's kind of startling, because I imagine not all Jerusalem knew. When these magi arrived, the whole city would know. Some people in the city would know. But I think in some ways what Matthew's doing, he's foreshadowing how the Jews, in a sense, the religious leaders are going to respond to Jesus. Because Matthew shows you, if you read the story of Matthew, though he's written to a Jewish audience, the people who reject Jesus the fastest is his Jewish audience. And the people who respond to Jesus in Matthew's Gospels are all the Gentiles, it's, it's all the people who are far from Jesus that respond, but those who are closer to Jesus reject him. And so the religious leaders, they don't recognize him. What should cause us, the religious, to respond, would we recognize him? Have you ever thought of that? If you were back in Jesus' day in Bethlehem, would you have recognized him when the pagan sorcerers showed up? Would you have recognized him when the shepherds were the first individuals in Jerusalem to hear the good news of the gospel? Would we identify with his kingdom? Or would there be something in us that says, this just, this isn't right. It's a question we need to ask ourselves. If Jesus came today, would we even recognize him? But see, Herod sees Jesus as a threat to his authority. Watch this in verse seven. And then he summons the wise men and secretly ascertains from them what time the star, he wants to know when the star appeared. He's trying to gain some wisdom, and he sent them to Bethlehem. Guys, listen, I'd love to worship this king as well. Ruthless, fearless, go search for the child, and when you found him, bring me word. Hey, let me know. I'd like to come. I'd like to worship him. And Herod has a very unique way, as we know, of worshiping the king. Herod's afraid. The authority of Jesus is a threat. And if I could be honest, I think that threat of Jesus' authority, it's in all of us. I know we look at Herod and we say, I wouldn't do what Herod would do, and, and you probably wouldn't. You wouldn't go out and slaughter every child under the age of two, but you're not a king. You didn't rise to power through violence. Now, maybe if you were, that's the response, the right response you would have. But I think when we hear about the news of Jesus as king, all of us internally, I, I think we push back a little bit, don't we? Hey, listen. You worked hard for your money. Here's how you should use it. Excuse me. I am the king over my money. Hey, here's your sexuality. Here's how it's designed. No, my sexuality is my sexuality. My body is my body. And I don't think it's one segment of our population that pushes back. All of us do. In different ways, when the true king shows up, the king is saying, it's mine. It's mine. Your life is mine. Your hopes are mine. Your dreams are mine. And who in us doesn't push back a little bit and say, I, I don't think so? Don't we feel threatened? 
when he describes this is how we're supposed to live. This is how relationships work. This is how life is done. And there's something in us in those moments, right, when we really rebel, when God and the Holy Spirit convict us and we kind of say, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not loving like that. I'm not living like that. I'm not gonna be a part of a church. I'm not gonna follow you, Jesus. I'm not gonna give my life to you. I want an advisor. I want a teacher. I don't want a king. And I think part in this story of Herod, we see something in all of us that we resist obedience to Jesus. We resist surrendering to his authority. And instead, we want the savior in our life, but we reject the king. Because when the true king comes, like Herod, I think there's something about Jesus that disturbs us. And the question is, where is Jesus disturbing you? And then when you approach him, do you realize who you're approaching? Somebody that enters into the world with humility and vulnerability, he doesn't use his power to crush you so you can approach him where you struggle. You can confess, you can admit. It's kind of like reminds me of the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10, rich young ruler comes to Jesus. Hey, listen, I've heard you're a great teacher. What do I got to do to get to heaven? Question a lot of people ask. And in Mark chapter 10, Jesus answers him. And Jesus looking at him, Mark 10 verse 21, looking at him, loved him and said, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. And notice it says, disheartened, his heart sank. And he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. What Jesus is addressing is the king over his throne. That there was something that had to be dethroned for Christ to be enthroned. And I think in all of us, and there's something in our discipleship, there's some aspect of life. Now, you may look at someone else's discipleship and say, hey, that's really messed up, that you can't surrender to that. But it's in all of us. And right now, even as we grow in maturity, there's things about us we just will not resist. But see, the nature of Jesus' arrival shows you that you can, you can trust him. He's not gonna use his power to crush you, but to lift you up. Do you see that? This is the nature and the beauty of our king. We see in Herod, I think, a response that's in all of us. And yet in the Magi, we see the response that we need. They show us how we should respond to Jesus. Watch this, verse 10. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly and with great joy. And going to the house, they saw the child. So realize Jesus is not a baby. I'm sorry for your nativity. It may need to, you need to move them about maybe two feet back because they come about two years later, okay? So can you guys do that when you get home? Can we fix that? Okay, we'll fix that. Make sure that's set. They saw the child and his mother and notice they fell down and worshiped him and they opened their treasures and they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. These are gifts of royalty. Now one thing that's interesting is Matthew is the lone gospel that says that Joseph and Mary had to escape. Because of the edict of Herod, he was gonna kill every child under the age of two. Well, how did they support themselves? With gold? <laughs> with incense and myrrh. How do you support yourself in a foreign country? God is already providing for them as they leave. Now, why do the Magi respond so differently? Think about that. As they're following this star, as they come to this city, as they witness Herod's reaction, as they see the reaction of the religious leaders, and then they come to this city in Bethlehem. And you can imagine they're, 
trying to figure this out. I mean, this is not their land. This is not their prophecy. But they love to study the stars to see what's coming in, in future events and history. And so they show up. And one of the things that must have surprised them is the difference between approaching Herod and approaching Jesus. You approach somebody of power, it's kind of hard to get near them, isn't it? If there's somebody of great prestige, power, influence, it's not like their door is wide open. It tends to be really difficult because the more authority, the more power, the more steps you've got to kind of walk through to kind of get into their presence. But with Jesus, the one who has all authority, divine authority, extensive authority, Jesus is absolutely accessible, and yet he is the creator of all things. He doesn't value things the way the world does, but you can walk right up to him. The first people to respond are shepherds. Now, we honor the shepherds, but the shepherds were the lowest in Jewish society. They were unclean. They were dirty. It's the kind of job you get if you were kind of on a work program, maybe, and you were released from prison. Hey, you can go be a shepherd. That kind of fits your style. Shepherds were the lowest of the low, but realize they're the first to respond to the birth of Jesus. They probably arrived just after Jesus was born, and yet they're dirty, unclean, immoral. Jesus is accessible. And then on the flip side, in the story of the Magi, here you have these influential pagan idolaters who travel from a foreign country, and Jesus welcomes them. Would the religious leaders welcome those? And would we? Who are the modern shepherds? Who are the modern magi? Who are the ones that we exclude? Who are the ones that God can't communicate through stars? God can't move in hearts this way. I think sometimes we have to realize the gospel is for the whole world. And when we meet someone, we need to expect that God may be moving in them. Jesus is incredibly accessible. And realize, read the gospels. As you start to discover his power and he starts to speak to evil spirits, and he heals, he raises the dead, he calms the storms. Is he any less accessible? Does he become any harder to reach? I mean, who are the people that Jesus gives access to? The ones his kingdom values, the poor, the lame. The bottom line is those who know they need him. Who is Jesus inaccessible to? Those who do not think they need him. The powerful, right? The religious leaders, I got this together. But to those who by humility simply respond, Jesus is accessible. This is the nature of our God and our King. He is accessible to all of us. And we discover that in his death, he makes accessibility to the Father secure for all of us. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18. Simply says, for through him, meaning through Jesus, we both have access in one spirit through the Father. That Jesus came in humility. He came in weakness. He, did, he offered up his life so that through faith in what he has done, we now have access and we can boldly come into the Father's presence, trusting that he will welcome us as his children. That's good news. And see, that is how the king uses his power and authority in, in your life. And what's so unique is that liberation and freedom in Jesus' kingdom, you know, it comes by surrendering to him. It comes by being, giving up control. Jesus said, you first have to die to yourself to come alive to me. But who wouldn't want to die to self to come alive to this king? 
And as we follow him in this Christmas season, are we willing to trust him in that way? And where are we resisting? I think the Magi, they truly grasp something about Jesus' authority of his accessibility. And so I'm just wondering for us today, where are you on the scale? Here's the scale, ready for this? Herod to the Magi. And I imagine none of you are Herod, but we're someplace on that line and that continuum, right? In different areas of our life. And where do you find yourself more like Herod? Resistant. I can't trust him. I don't know if he's good enough. I don't know if his love is right. Where, where is it hard to surrender to him? Maybe it's in relationships. It could be in your own health. It could be in the future and what's coming. It could be in struggles and money. Where is it difficult to surrender to him? And where do you find yourself very open like the Magi, willing to just open your heart, to give yourself to him? In this Christmas season, I think it's important for us to evaluate kind of where are we in that story of discipleship? Where has God been calling us to obedience? We're just kind of, nope, I'm not doing that yet. I'm not going that way yet. Maybe this morning it's the time to just commit, to say, I'm, I'm gonna count the cost. I wanna follow you, Jesus, and be a disciple who gives my whole heart, my life to you. And here's the last thought I wanna share with you as you kind of survey this story before we share communion. What's fascinating is the joy of the Magi. That's something that's been hitting me. Joy is a, a struggle for me. I would say I'm somebody in the last few years struggles with depression. I find myself dwelling in negative thoughts at times. Though I meditate and I, I memorize a lot of scripture, it's just something God is, is using in me. And so joy is always elusive. Joy is hard, isn't it? It's hard to maintain. It's hard to protect. Once you get it, it's just, it's kind of gone. And if you try to grab it, you find that it slips through your fingers. And what I find is fascinating as God was teaching me about joy is the closer the Magi move to Jesus, the more joy they find. From a distance, they're intrigued. But then after they speak to Herod, this amazing star, which we didn't talk about, which I don't think is a natural phenomenon. It moves too much. They see the star and it says they're overjoyed. And then Matthew emphasizes, and they're filled with, they're overjoyed and filled with joy. I don't know what that means. That's a lot of joy. And then when they see the child, what happens? The child told them to bow down. Hey, guys, why don't you bow down before me and give me what you got? No, that's a, that's a response, it's not, isn't it? It's, that's worship. That's that moment when you're in your room, and I hope you've had that, and you're reading scripture, and you're just, oh, he sees me. I see him. He loves me. He receives me. Or in life, hopefully sometime in a sermon or on a Sunday morning, maybe you've had that encounter. Or in life, you hear the voice of the Spirit reminding you of who he is. I think one of the reasons we fail to experience that joy is just we're not willing to draw near, and then we're not willing to surrender when we do. Because we've always got a, a few excuses and a few things that God needs to take care of before I'm willing to give him everything. But if this is our king, church, why would we not give him all that we have? Hey, we're gonna celebrate communion this morning, and I don't know what God stirred in you. This is an opportunity for us to reflect as we rehearse the gospel. And the gospel is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that through his life, death, and the resurrection, we have access to the Father. And so if you didn't grab the elements when you came in, they're available, please, please go and grab those. I wanna invite Brian to come up as he, he plays in the background. And we wanna spend that time in reflection and silent prayer as we just 
spend this time asking that question. Lord, where are we struggling to surrender to you, to submit to you, to trust you, to believe you? Let's spend a few moments with these elements seeking God's face. Father, I thank you that you long in this Advent season to give rest for our souls and that rest is found in you. It's found in treasuring you, enduring you, understanding the nature of your power, your authority, and how you use it in our lives to bring joy and peace and hope and life. And Father, where we're not experiencing that, would we just admit it? It's okay. We live in a broken world failed expectations, hurts, dreams. And so we confess, Father, this is where we are. This is the truth of where we are as we sit just a week away from Christmas morning, the celebration of family and friends. This is where we are today, but we surrender and cast our cares on you. We take on your yoke for it is easy and your burden for it is light. And would we find, Father, in this season that we have nothing on earth, but in heaven we just, we have you. And we would find that earth has nothing we desire besides you. Though our heart and our flesh may fail, may we find that you are the strength of our heart. And Jesus, you are our portion forever. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. He broke it, he gave thanks, and he said, this is my body. It's my body and it is broken for you. Receive it together in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took a cup. He said, this cup, it represents the new covenant in my blood. Let us receive it together.